0: So this fall between Labor Day and Advent, I've been preaching this sermon series called Wise Words from a Wild Wonder Worker. I've been following the gospel passages from the Common Lectionary, from the gospel according to St. Matthew, who gives us the parables and proclamations of Jesus in the last week of his life. Matthew 21, when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus said to them, I will also ask you a question. If you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another If we say, from heaven, he will say to us, Well, then why didn't you believe? But if we say, of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for everyone thinks of John as a prophet. And so the scribes answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. And so the father went to the second son and said the same. And the second son answered, I go, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father, asked Jesus. And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. The tax collectors and prostitutes believed him, and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable, and I say to the Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So Jesus tells this simple, rustic story on the day after Palm Sunday, and when you hear this story, he tells, you don't have to ask why he hasn't longed to live. The respected scribes and powerful Pharisees are the bad guys in Jesus' little story, and this is no way to win friends and influence people. He will be dead in four days. A man has two sons, says Jesus. And the father goes to the first son and says, Son, go work in the vineyard today. The southern ridge is ripe. But the first son says curtly, I will not. Now, if this sounds rude to 21st century American ears, think what it must have sounded like in a culture where a father's spoken wish was a son's infrangible command. Now, not long after the father leaves, the son changes his mind and regrets his blunt insolence and goes out to pick the grapes. Under the now mistaken impression that he still needs someone to harvest the grapes, the father goes to the second son and says, Son, go work in the vineyard today. The southern ridge is ripe. The second son is just as abrupt as the first, but far more courteous. I go, sir, he says. Notice that he's both quick and polite in his apparent compliance. Sir, he calls his father. A small obeisance, the rude first son eschewed. I go, sir, he says instantly and politely. But then he doesn't go. The rude son is out there. In the hot sun, harvesting the grapes all by himself. Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, Now which son did the will of his father? The first, they say instantly. It's an easy question. But of course, Jesus has just managed to get the Pharisees to hoist themselves on their own petard. Because at least the way Jesus frames the story, the whole ancient matrix of Jewish religion, temple and Torah, Torah, Kosher and Sabbath, prayer and praise, psalm and song are like a compliant son who says the right thing but does the wrong thing. While scorned and impious delinquents like tax collectors and prostitutes play the part of a rude son who says the wrong thing but then goes ahead and does the right thing. Slouching guiltily into the vineyard at the last possible moment to gather a mash that will be distilled into an exquisite cabernet pleasing to God. Can anybody here relate to this story? Does this little vineyard vignette recapitulate itself in your own homes? Anybody here have a charming, acquiescent child and a cranky, obedient one? Do you have a child who replies, sir, yes, sir, right away, sir, to every request but then never manages to get around to walking the dog, cleaning her room, doing her homework, or washing the dishes? And then do you also have a litigious child who mopes sullenly around at every petition, but then when you're not looking, mows the lawn, weeds the garden, aces the SATs, and gets into Duke? The first one is easier to deal with in some ways. But which one is likely to show up and stick around when you break your hip in the autumn of your life? (laughs) Now, in Jesus' little story, both sons dishonor their father, right? The first son publicly shames, but then privately honors his father. What he says is no, but what he does is yes. And the second son publicly honors, but then privately shames his father. What he says is yes, but what he does is no. Now, wouldn't it be great if our words and deeds always perfectly cohered? Wouldn't it be great if we always said the right word and did the right thing in the right way, at the right time, and in the right frame of mind? Alas, however, we are all human. And so we all know environmentalists, who stack four cases of water in plastic bottles that will last a thousand years in the hatchback of their Yukons. And we all know politicians who squeal about the evils of big government while lowering taxes, raising spending, and waging trillion-dollar wars they have no idea how they're going to pay for. And we all know a father who texts with one hand to the boss while he's dribbling a basketball with the other, While playing a pickup game of basketball with his son. This is a parable for all good folk who make sure they're always saying the right thing and abiding by the religious obligatory rituals. And these are good things, of course, but they're not precisely to Jesus' point, and they're not what he's after. What he's after, of course, is not pretty promises but definitive deeds. I think one of the lessons we can learn from this story is the ambiguity of the whole religious phenomenon. In his famous book with the searing title, Why I Am Not a Christian, Bertrand Russell says, one is often told that it is a very wrong thing to attack religion because religion makes people virtuous. So I am told, I have not noticed it. And similar sentiments, of course, have prompted Christopher Hitchens to write another book with a searing title, God is Not Great, where he asks us to conduct a thought experiment. He asks us to imagine ourselves walking down a dark street in a dicey neighborhood of a large and unfamiliar city and we see a large group of young men coming towards us from the opposite direction. Would you feel safer, he asks? Would you feel safer or less safe if you knew that they, they were just emerging from a prayer meeting? Chris Hitchens has his own answer to that question, of course. He says he's experienced just that phenomenon in such disparate cities as Belfast, Beirut, Bombay, Belgrade, Bethlehem, and Baghdad, just to stick with the letter B. There's an old Belfast joke about the man who is accosted on the street by a menacing person. Streets of Belfast. Are you a Catholic or a Protestant Asks the threatening interrogator. Oh, man, this is a tough situation. What if he gives the wrong answer? But on the spot, the man comes up with an elegant solution. I'm Jewish, he says. (laughs) Ah, say now, replies the street tough. Wouldn't I be about the luckiest Arab in Ireland this evening? (laughs) Religion is such an ambiguous phenomenon. Sometimes it's hard to tell which of God's children are actually out there in the vineyard doing God's good work. There are, after all, nominal Christians and anonymous Christians. By nominal Christians, I mean those who are Christian in name only. They say all the right words and they observe all the correct rituals, but when it comes to life on the street, their faith is limp at best and invisible at worst. One of the most memorable characters in George Eliot's novel Adam Bede is Hetty Sorrel. Hetty is very beautiful but a little shallow and self-absorbed, and the narrator says of Hetty, religious doctrines had taken no hold on Hetty's mind. She was one of those numerous people who have had godfathers and godmothers, learned their catechism, went through confirmation, and gone to church every Sunday. And yet, for any practical result for strength in life or trust in death, have never appropriated a single Christian thought or Christian feeling. Hetty is a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only. But also, of course, there are anonymous Christians. That is to say, they don't go by the name of Christian. They may never have heard of Jesus, or if they have, they may have ignored or rejected him. They don't say the right words, and they don't observe the correct rituals. But then, by the mysteries of God's grace, they somehow manage to end up living the Christ-like life. When the Father asks them to work in the vineyard, they say, I will not. But then there they are under the hot sun, harvesting the grapes. It was the German Catholic theologian and Jesuit priest, Carl Rahner, who came up with this concept of anonymous Christianity around the time of the Second Vatican Council in 1962. He just couldn't believe that the whole complicated apparatus of the Roman Catholic Church was a prerequisite for God's good favor. And people didn't necessarily need baptism and confirmation and Eucharist to be right with God. And it won't surprise you to learn that for a while, the Vatican censored Dr. Rahner's writings and forbid him from publishing anything, orthodoxy or heresy, until Pope John XXIII made him an integral theologian on the Second Vatican Council. I love that phrase, anonymous Christian. Congregational preacher Tony Robinson served a church in a small town in the foothills of the Cascades. And he says that years before he arrived there, the town held a contest to decide which citizen was the best Christian. Funny contest. But they all voted, and they all agreed that Mr. Miller was the town's best Christian. Mr. Miller owned a local dry goods store. And he was kind and friendly, and he knew everybody, and everybody knew him. But Mr. Miller must have found it a bit odd to be named the town's best Christian because he was Jewish but maybe he was an anonymous Christian doing Christ-like work without serving Christ verbally. Anonymous Christians don't always say the right words and observe the correct rituals, but they do the right thing. A member of my church in Connecticut ran a wonderful restaurant in Midtown Manhattan, and my wife Kathy and I went as often as we could, but we went for different reasons. I went because the food and service were spectacular and Kathy went because it was also Paul Newman's favorite restaurant. (laughs) And he was often there. So I wondered, besides those blue eyes, what was so compelling about Paul Newman. So I started looking into this a little bit. I don't know what Paul Newman's religious sensibilities are. His father was Jewish, and his mother was raised Roman Catholic, but then she became a Christian scientist. So who knows what religious sensibilities that concoction came up with. He did go to an Episcopalian college, Kenyan college. Had to go to chapel several times a year. But he never talked about his faith. And you know, with 65 movies in 50 years, he could have just coasted into retirement while basking in the glory of an adoring public. The Times film critic Pauline Kael paid Paul Newman a left-handed compliment when she said that his range as an actor was limited by his infectious charms. She said nobody should ever be asked to dislike Paul Newman. And you know what she means, all those charming rogues he plays. Butch Cassidy, Cool Hand Luke, Henry Gondorf in The Sting. He was successfully vile and rode to perdition, though, don't you think? And still, after all of that, he started selling salad dressing in 1982. Go figure, salad dressing. And since then, his firm has made $400 million in profits, every last penny devoted to charity, most of it to his hole-in-the-wall gang camps for children with cancer where they all wear cowboy hats because children with cancer lose their hair to chemotherapy. All these artistic achievements, all this universal adulation. But Mr. Newman says his greatest legacy is what he did after his film career. His philanthropy is his legacy. We're such spendthrifts with our lives, he says, I'm not running for sainthood. I just happen to think that in life we need to be a little like the farmer who puts back into the soil what he takes out. What we do is so much more compelling than what we say. And so I hope some of us are like that rude first son. We don't always manage to come up with the right words or even the right attitude. I will not, we've said to God over and over and over again when God invites us to join God's good work. We don't even say, sir, just I will not. Our faith is a little patchy, maybe. But maybe we'll think again and change our minds and make our way out to the vineyard and gather the prolific vintage and do something wonderful for a world crying out in need. Maybe we don't always know what to believe. Maybe we don't always know what to say. But we know what to do. Yes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.